This is Spotify, a product story. And I'm Gustav Söderström. I head up product engineering data and design for Spotify. In this podcast, we're going to share the untold stories behind Spotify's biggest product launches, pivots, and business deals. We'll break down exactly what happened, why Spotify ultimately succeeded, and how it felt at the time to be part of these make-or-break decisions. And we'll bring you the most important strategic lessons that we learned along the way, all in the words of the people who lived it and actually made it happen. In the last episode, we brought you the prologue to the Spotify story. You learned about the world in which Spotify was born, where Napster had decimated the music industry. They, they hadn't yet experienced what was coming. They, they didn't understand the tsunami that had just hit them. Where Swedish infrastructure and ideology made piracy mainstream. I mean, Sweden was, it was a piracy haven. It was crazy and where we introduced a whole new way of consuming music. At the time, there were no smartphones and the word streaming wasn't used. In this episode, we'll cover the very unlikely story behind Spotify's first product, the desktop app, and the four biggest lessons that Spotify took away from it. Lessons that still shape the company to this day, almost 15 years later. And we're going to pick up right where we left off, starting with this guy. So I'm uh, Daniel Ek. I'm the CEO and founder of Spotify. In 2006, Daniel and his friend Martin Lawrenson were two tech entrepreneurs with a couple of acquisitions under their belts. Daniel founded a company called Advertigo, which Martin's company had bought. And Martin had built and taken one of Europe's largest ads businesses, Trade Doubler Public. This put them in the enviable position of having time on their hands and capital to invest. And I think we were, you know, both kind of searching for what to be passionate about. They were hanging out in Daniel's apartment outside of Stockholm, watching the Godfather movies and brainstorming ideas for new companies to invest in. And so Martin asked me, what are you passionate about? And I said, well, in essence, I'm passionate about music and I'm passionate about computers. And I said, okay, well, shouldn't we do something with that and I said well not really because it's a really dumb idea Uh, and I went through and talked about all the reasons why you couldn't do anything in music which is you know you had rampant piracy Uh, you had Napster come along first wave create a much better consumer experience and the problem with that obviously was that it was piracy so it didn't compensate the rights holders and the rights holders went after them and sued them so I said it's never going to work and and uh, Martin being Martin, he asked, well, okay, well, but if you would do it, what would you do? Right. Uh, Mar- Martin is not the type to give up on ideas. No, and and uh, he he asked very open-ended but positive intended questions, which gets you to kind of start thinking. So I said, well, the only way you're going to actually solve this is, I guess, if you make a better product than piracy. And Martin's next question was, okay, well, how would you do that? So what could possibly be a better experience than piracy? If you listen to the prologue episode, or you live through Y2K, or even know what Y2K actually was, then you'll remember that even though music piracy was incredibly accessible, I mean, all the world's music for free, it was also tedious and very hard to use. It wasn't a great product. 
the major downside to piracy from the consumer's perspective was the amount of time it took. You had to install software, you had to go to a pirate site, search for the file for a song, and then download it, which could take many minutes. And then, even once it was on your hard drive, it could still take several seconds for the music to actually start playing, because we had these slow spinning hard drives back then. And sometimes, you'd spend 20 minutes downloading a single track, only to find out when you press play that it wasn't named correctly, or it was super poor quality. And even when you got the song you wanted, you might have downloaded a virus along with it. So, how could you do to piracy what piracy did to CDs? How could you take the user experience of piracy and make it so much better that people didn't even want to pirate anymore? In other words, how do you steal from a pirate? I guess if you could take the concept of downloading all the world's music like you have on Napster and Kazaa, uh, for a free price or a very low price, and you married it with the user experience of iTunes so that it would feel like you had all the world's music on your hard drive, that would be a much better uh, experience than piracy. And then I think uh, everyone would turn to that. Simple, right? All you had to do was to find a way to give people the perfect listening session, all for free. Just search for any song ever recorded and press play. Now, Daniel and Martin knew that people weren't going to pay for music, at least not until episode two. But if the product was good enough, they might be willing to listen to ads, which could generate enough revenue to actually pay rights holders and make being a musician sustainable again. And that brings us to our first lesson. Convenience trumps everything. Daniel and Martin made the bet that people would keep pirating songs until something even easier came along. And once it did, they would make the switch. But all of this was theoretical until there was an actual product, so Daniel and Martin decided to start building a team of engineers to see what they could come up with. I had some rough rudimentary concepts of uh, what it would be like, but I, I do want to take you back because there was a few more problems that we tried to solve. So the first one was at the time when we're talking about most of the world, even in 2006, was on either dial-up, uh, still, ISDN, or terrible, terrible broadband. So, you know, often when you went to a web page, even the web page itself took 10 to 20 seconds to load. There were very few examples. Actually, the one that comes to mind was Google, and they pretty much built their entire business of just being fast. So speed um, was just a key differentiating factor, and I'd seen that firsthand in my experience in building other um, products. But the, the second thing that's important is bandwidth at the time was incredibly expensive. Right. This is easy to forget now. But back then, if you were an investor, one of the biggest concerns was actually the scalability of unit costs for bandwidth, right? Which is something you barely ask about today. Yeah, 100%. But I'm, I'm a, like many entrepreneurs, I'm an optimist. I just figured if we build a fat client or a web page or whether it's uh, truly distributed or semi-distributed, we'll find a way. For me, it was more important to, to try to articulate like, does the vision work? Meaning if you could have all the world's music on your hard drive and create that feeling, regardless of what technical solution you used in the end, did I think that would work? And the answer was 100% yes. And that's it was that maniacal focus that drove many of the, the 
first order of innovations that we ended up doing at Spotify with uh, latency optimizations, with the speed of search, with you know even building the first version of the client. Uh, I was just uh, trying to deliver on that experience. It quickly became obvious that in order to deliver that experience, they were going to have to break the rules, including embracing the controversial technology that had made it impossible to stop piracy. How did you come up with the idea to use peer-to-peer file sharing for, for a legal music service? Much of my, my career in technology up until this point um, was really driven by, by toying around with technology. And at the time, there was, there was two things that were particularly interesting technology-wise for me. One of those was peer-to-peer as a technology. Uh, it was almost at the time talked about uh, kind of like cryptos discussed today. It was this holy grail that could solve all of these business problems. And then the other thing was uh, parallel computing. So whatever I wanted to do uh, had to use these technologies. Um, so I was almost finding a problem that could that we could use them on. After reading about it, it became pretty obvious that moving around large amounts of data peer-to-peer was a great answer. How much of that was to save cost and how much do you think the, actually the infrastructure wasn't even there for streaming all of that kind of centrally? Um, well, it was pretty clear, like if we're talking about the scale of Spotify today, the hundreds of millions, the technology to do that online wasn't there. Um, so that would have been impossible. So we kind of figured this was a beautiful and elegant engineering way to get to that outcome and you know do it in an economically viable way because what ended up happening obviously is you know if, uh, when you hosted your own servers if you try to even order a gigabit connection uh, from your internet provider that was unheard of and the cost was insane so i figured uh, at least it could solve that problem but speed and reliability was the big uh, sort of challenges and therein i knew we had a real challenge we needed to find a solution to it wasn't clear intuitively how we would do that. And so early on in the first month or two of Spotify's existence, the team actually didn't want to build it on peer-to-peer architecture at all. So we toyed around with the idea of doing it, but we kept going back to a more client-server infrastructure model. And even as the client went, the team didn't want to do that either, but wanted to bet on a web architecture. And I kept pushing them back on this other one. Honestly, today I would admit that it was mostly because I thought the other sort of more peer-to-peer model would solve the data problem. So I figured that was the way we needed to stick with. And the time when we got really convinced that it was the right one was that when when I sort of accidentally stumbled upon Lude, our main client developer, and it was when we hired him that the rest of the team realized that we needed to go down this other path because he was just so good at the client development part and, and knew so much about peer-to-peer that um, that kind of settled the directions. The Ludin question is Ludus de Gius. And you might be surprised to learn, Ludin was one of the biggest names in music piracy. Ludin built U-Torrent. Yes, that U-Torrent. The second most popular BitTorrent client ever with 150 million users around the world. In case you forgot, here's a quick refresher on BitTorrent. By 2006, peer-to-peer networking had evolved from Napster's model of sharing full MP3s between two people into torrents. Torrents have a few key advantages over earlier forms of piracy. They're peer-to-peer just like Napster, 
where you download the files directly from other users, but instead of connecting you to just one other user, torrents break up files into tiny little pieces, and you simultaneously download many fractions of the same file from other users who are close to you on the network. Ludo was quite possibly the only programmer in the world who could figure out how to use peer-to-peer -peer networking to make Spotify a reality. Everyone assumes it was me who scouted and found Ludo. And it was a chance encounter that brought him to the company. But it was actually Martin, my co-founder, who's completely untechnical. That was the one who scouted and found Lude. So what happened was we had started Spotify and we'd been going on for about a month or two. Um, in this process, started hiring people. And Martin one day tells me about his friend uh, from Borås, which is a small town outside of Gothenburg. He's on a car optimization company. Uh, has nothing to do in my world with any kind of technology. And he talks about this one engineer this guy has, and he only has one, by the way, and who this guy thinks is brilliant. Uh, and I was like, okay, rolling my eyes, I'm not sure. It was like, yeah, he has this guy, and he has a side project, and then I said, okay, I'm still rolling my eyes, like, what what kind of side project? And it's like, it's called uTorrent, and I was like, what? And I'd obviously heard of uTorrent, and it was a marvel of engineering, and... And I knew who Lude was mostly because um, there are all these sort of price competitions on the internet for amazing programmers. And this one Swedish guy was almost always at the very, very top of them. And that was this guy. I didn't know he had actually created U-Torn at the time. And that was the same person. But as I connected the dots, I was like, he went from being like, I'll do this to help you to, to saying, holy shit, I need to meet this guy. So Martin and Daniel, hopped on the train to Gothenburg to give Ludo the hard sell. So when I find a project that interests me enough, I, I can't really stop working on it. So the problem is to, to actually find these projects. Meet Ludo Strigius. Luckily for Daniel, Ludo found their idea more interesting than the offers he was getting from Silicon Valley. And Ludo knew exactly what to do. The opposite of what everyone else was doing. Doing it in the browser wasn't even an alternative. There wasn't any competitive uh, way to do it in the browser at that time. The browsers weren't mature enough. Back then, most of the web was made up of browser-based so-called thin clients, like web pages or flash-based clients that ran in your browser. There were a few downloaded apps, so-called fat clients, like Skype and AOL Instant Messenger. But remember, this is the mid-2000s. We're still in Web 1.0 territory. There was almost no interactivity in the browser. As Ludo was saying, if Spotify lived in the browser, it could only run as slowly as the rest of the browser-based internet and our competition, which meant that it could never provide a better experience than piracy. But Ludo already knew our next lesson. Lesson number two. If you want to fundamentally improve something, you have to break existing standards and think full stack about your problem. In order to play instantly, or at least as fast as humans' perceptual limit of immediacy, which is maybe a couple of hundred milliseconds, Spotify had to ignore all the standards and develop its own unique protocols and end-to-end -end streaming infrastructure, both servers and clients. So Lude, along with a team of world-class programmers, including people like Gunnar Kreitz, Andreas Ehn, Andreas Matson, Friedrich Niemöller, and many others, got to work. Spotify's peer-to-peer -peer network, it wasn't BitTorrent, but it, it was inspired 
by BitTorrent. Spotify used peer to peer, not so much primarily for you know for a latency reduction mechanism. Peer to peer was only used for like the non latency critical parts. For example, when you start playing a song in Spotify, uh, the first you know maybe thirty seconds were always downloaded directly from uh, the Spotify servers, because with a peer-to-peer network, you can't really make any latency guarantees. You never know when when a peer will send you something. While with the Spotify servers, we had you know complete control over the bandwidth and who they decided to send things to. So what made peer-to-peer a good fit for Spotify was basically that we could offload the servers. So everything that's not a part of these you know thirty-first seconds of the song could be downloaded from the peer-to-peer network, which meant that we could reduce the amount of servers and we could reduce the amount of network traffic from those servers in combination with uh, a local cache thing on your computer. Or So basically, whenever you listen to something that get, gets saved on your hard drive, and if you listen to the same thing again, instead of uh, getting it from the servers, you, you would just read it from the cache. And this fits well with the peer-to-peer network because everything that's in your cache could be shared over the peer-to-peer network. And people's caches are also the, the, are also the file stores that they share on this private encrypted peer-to-peer network, right? The idea is that the user couldn't actually access their own yeah. cache, but the network could, and they could listen to their own yeah, cache. Exactly. We use client-server technology, and then for anything predictable or non-time critical, we, we try to use peer-to-peer. But the thing that made more difference in speed for Spotify was the fact that we had a persistent connection to the backend. With BitTorrent, the the kind of time to set up downloading a file could be a little bit slow because you have to connect to these peers and stuff. While with Spotify, you already had this set of peers that you were connected to, so you didn't really have to reestablish any connections. You could just ask them, do you have this file? And some of them would have it, and you could start getting things from the Spotify peer-to-peer network in just like a second. While with BitTorrent, it, it would maybe take, you know, I don't know, 10 times more. And you got some um, benefit there. And whenever you wanted to play a file, you could just send out the message to the backend that, give me the, the first part of this file. And it would reply basically instantly without having to set up any new TCP connections and handshakes and, you know, with the HTTPS, if you want to set up a new connection, you need to communicate back and forth like three, four times before you can send the first piece of data. If you're on a, on a mobile with a half a second uh, delay to the server, just setting up an HTTP connection is, is going to take like two, three seconds. TCP, if you aren't familiar with it, stands for Transmission Control Protocol and is one of the most foundational internet protocols. TCP was developed by DARPA in the 70s, and 50 years later, it still controls how packets of data are sent between computers over the internet. If you think of protocols as layers, TCP is the layer below HTTP. I think nowadays, it's obvious to everyone that whenever you can make something faster, users use it more. You know, this is what Google learned, this is what we learned, but it wasn't as obvious back then. But but all of Spotify's initial innovation was to on the consumer side about around speed. Now as you just explained on the on the technology side, 
we actually saved a lot of bandwidth cost as well by using peer-to-peer, -peer, but the speed part of it wasn't the peer-to-peer. -peer. That was the cost savings and the bandwidth saving. The speed, the speed part was actually the client-server part. We didn't use HTTPS or something on top of that. We used custom protocols that were much more, more efficient. What about the, the traffic control congestion part of, of TCP? Uh, it has these uh, functions that are supposed to regulate traffic and optimize for, for throughput over latency. And we wanted to actually rather pay with lower throughput, but, but lower latency or more inefficient, more overhead if, if it would actually have less latency, right? Uh, okay, there are different things of TCP in play here. One thing is TCP has something called slow start. So if you set up a new TCP connection, that TCP connection will not reach its full speed until after a while. While in Spotify's case, since we had a persistent TCP connection, we would already have kind of... We already ramped it up, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. It was more the ramping up that the TCP connection was already ramped up that made the biggest difference. Yeah, that and the fact that we kind of optimized both the client and the backend to be as performant as possible. And the code in the client and the code in the backend was kind of designed in a way to keep the latency down. Like, like with the uTorrent, Spotify didn't really use any ready-made libraries for things. Everything was kind of custom-made, which meant that we could control everything to a good degree. This was really Spotify's first key product decision. Building a proprietary full-stack media distribution solution with its own streaming protocols allowed the team to seamlessly combine the scalability of peer-to-peer -peer with the speed of client-server technology and optimize the hell out of it. So Spotify was a hybrid client-server solution and peer-to-peer -peer solution. It was basically a client-server solution for the first 30 seconds of a song, and then it was a peer-to-peer -peer solution for the remaining two and a half minutes of the song. Whenever it was time-critical, Spotify used client-server technology. And then for anything predictable or non-time-critical, it used peer-to-peer. The other benefit of full stack was that Spotify could make a bunch of assumptions about the system, like that you were probably going to listen to the tracks of an album in order, and we could use different music codecs to decode the audio. The MP3 codec is the most common and well-known, but Spotify instead used an open-source version called Ogvorbis to further improve latency. Or, as Daniel put it, By going um, down to the basics and understanding every single uh, bit and part of this, and by understanding the protocol itself, we created a peer-to-peer -peer protocol that, that would actually understand exactly which order uh, the parts of the song actually would arrive in, especially in the beginning. The benefits were that we were able to take the headers of the actual Ogvorbis, which was an open source codec. And, and so we were able, because of that, and because of betting and understanding every single part of the stack, we were able to look at all the headers, trim all the headers that were unnecessary. And because of that, we could not only figure out exactly when to begin things, but we could start playback way faster uh, than any and anyone else. Because it turned out, as we were analyzing this, that there was just a bunch of of data that wasn't necessary um, as you were sending it, because we could assume you would know a bunch of things already in the client because of all that knowledge that we would have. And so not only could we take all of the traditional shortfalls of the technology, uh, but we could actually reverse them into advantages as well by going very deep on the technology stack. I think this is interesting because uh, all of the internet at the time was going in a certain direction. There was talk about thin clients and everything was moving to the browser. And 
there was a lot of focus on standardization and protocols. I guess HTML5 and so hadn't happened yet, but that was the direction things were going, all up until the iPhone came eventually. Yeah. But still, Spotify took completely the opposite approach. Proprietary protocols, proprietary stack, full end-to-end distribution solution, and a fat downloaded client instead of a thin browser-based, you know, at least Flash client or something. How obvious was that? It wasn't obvious at all, but I think it comes back to your DNA um, as the founder. And my DNA was I love technology and I love technology even for technology's sake. So it, it just made it cooler. And I figured if it was more interesting and more cooler, we could also recruit cooler people and more talented people that can work on these problems. So th- again, coming back to it, I think setting a high uh, bar of both scale and ambition in what the problem is that you're trying to solve made it interesting for a lot of really brilliant people to want to join this team and want to be a part of it. So we we really went back and said, look, we're going to do this the right way because we don't have the normal funding constraints. We're going to do this the way you should do this company. And so you went back and you kind of looked at, okay, well, if we had a perfect solution, what would that look like? And then work ourselves backwards and then start making trade-offs instead of just looking at all the tools that you had in the toolbox currently. Spotify couldn't have pulled any of this off if it had followed the browser trend instead of going full stack. And that's the importance of lesson number two. But if you're paying attention, there's another lesson baked in as well. Lesson number three, what attracts great talent is the level of ambition. Ludin never would have joined Spotify if it weren't for the challenge it presented. And Daniel wouldn't have pursued hiring Lude if he hadn't been open to breaking the rules and doing something completely new and unproven. Whatever it took to make this vision a reality. The bet here was that amazing engineering can find amazing solutions to these problems. So in, in essence, the real bet that we made as a company wasn't so much on a specific technology. The real bet was on talent. And the real bet, in in this case, a a lot of the specific choices ended up almost happening by um, some intuition and, and a lot of luck. By 2008, through a bunch of brilliant engineering and contrarian technology choices, Spotify had solved the tech side of the equation. It even had a hypothetical ad supported business model. But it turns out that in the media industry, unlike most other tech industries, building the product is only half the work. And incredibly, often the easier half. Next came licensing the music itself, a force that has shaped Spotify from its very beginning. I would argue for the better, but more on that in episode two. Before it could launch, Spotify had to make deals with the labels and artists, an industry that had seen this exact peer-to-peer technology decimate their livelihoods, and was understandably deeply suspicious of tech companies and their true intentions. Everything was so undetermined. Everyone was afraid and unsure about the future. And, you know, you went the 90s and the gold era of CDs. That was like completely a memory now. So it was a lot of people worried. In 2008, Michelle Kadir now VP of Artist Strategy at Sony, had just graduated from Stockholm's Royal Institute of Technology with a degree in computer science and had landed her dream job at Universal Sweden in their brand new digital department. Michelle's job was to vet ideas for tech products and services that Universal could potentially use to help recover the losses in CD cells. And 
we were just trying to get as much as we could locally signed because we needed to get revenues going up from zero to something digital wise to make up from the physical decline. Why do you think that the music industry, they didn't manage to solve it themselves because they had nothing to lose in Sweden. They clearly had interest. They hired you, they hired others. Why, why do you think it's so hard for, or was so hard and maybe is so hard for the music side to innovate themselves? I, I think that the core business was never that, to be inventors of technology. The core business was always content and working with creators. And to kind of assume that a ship that large should just like shift their whole focus, that's a huge thing. So I think that while labels have their core experience and thinking that, hey, they should have solved this, I mean, that's almost impossible to ask for. That means they had to redefine the whole company and the whole purpose of their existence. So I think that while we in Sweden, we had a we had a good position because of how bad it was. I mean, we even had a pirate party that advocated like their core single purpose was to kind of, you know, free music. Um, so therefore, we could experiment much more, both inventors and entrepreneurs, but also on the license side as a working on a label at a label. What was the feeling inside the labels at the time? I mean, there was a lot of fear because also people were obviously scared of their job, losing their job. If they if they saw if their competence was on the physical side, if that was what they had done for five, ten, fifteen years, obviously that was you have to just understand that's human nature. And so that was one part. And then you had another part of say a company that was very excited about, you know, what was gonna happen. And I was part of that. And we had so many entrepreneurs pitching all types of ideas. This was the setting Daniel stepped into when he pitched Universal on the first desktop client. So um, we had a another meeting with another entrepreneur scheduled. We had many of those a month, almost several times a week. It was just another meeting and it was like called Spotify and we were okay, cool. And this guy called Daniel. So um, uh, we had a conference room in our, at our office locally at Universal Sweden. And um, I mean, I was always excited to see, okay, what's this going to be like? And you almost always knew within like seven minutes or so if this was going to be an interesting meeting or not. And um, yeah, so Daniel entered the room. So we were like, okay. Uh, he opened up his computer and, and, you know, projected on the screen and started showing the product. The thing that happened that was kind of pure magic in that meeting was that he did a comparison. So he started playing a song on the software and the song played so quick, so instant, like never seen, heard before. Um, I mean, I don't know if people remember, but I mean, playback was slow back then. Even if you had an MP3 on your computer and you played it via, you know, whatever, Winamp, iTunes. And this was faster. And we were like, you have the files on your computer, right? And he was like, no, it's in the cloud. And we were like, no. <laughs> and then, you know, that was the discussion. And here we have maybe the most important lesson from the desktop client. Lesson number four. Every product needs a magic trick. It needs to do something that nobody thought was possible. It needs to pull off an illusion. For Spotify, 
That illusion was the illusion of having downloaded all of Napster to your hard drive, instantly accessible for free. And it was totally captivating. I mean, spoke to the kid in me that were sitting up like past midnight downloading one song. It took 30 minutes on like, you know, Napster. And then you just hope like, okay, I hope this is a good version. Uh, I mean, from that to, you know, what Spotify brought to the table. And I was completely amazed. And then he also talked about the business model and that also made sense. Like, okay, so is this gonna be the combination? Like this type of product with this type of business model. And I was just, I was just like instantly, okay, this is really, really, really interesting. And I even thought about like, not for Universal, but like for me. So straight after the meeting, I shoot him an email from my personal email account. <laughs> I was like, hey, I want to come work for Spotify. And that's exactly what happened. Not long after that first meeting, Michelle quit her job at Universal to become one of the earliest members of Spotify's product team. It's hard to overstate just how much the product itself and this magic trick mattered in convincing users, future employees, and the record industry to take a chance on Spotify. When I first tried Spotify, I was still working for Yahoo in the US after having sold my first company to them. And I literally couldn't believe how fast it was. I was sure there was some kind of prank with a server hiding in the room next door. Just like Michelle, I saw Spotify in action and I knew I wanted to be a part of it. And in the story of Spotify, we hear this over and over again from rock stars. It really was like, wow, this is the future. Oh my God, now it's going to be like, uh, I don't know, Moses parting the oceans or something, this whole thing. To record executives. When I saw it, you know, I saw it demonstrated. Then I thought it was, this is just fake. This can't be this good. I mean, honestly, it just started to play instantly. And of course, nothing can be that fast or good, you know. To early employees. And it was basically so good. Or, you know, from a sort of user not just from a sort of professional basis, but more like, well, this is how you're supposed to consume music. So that's the real lesson to take away from Michelle's story. A lesson that most people know intuitively, actually. There are always plenty of ideas and potentially good business models out there. But if the product is unimpressive, you simply won't convince people. As we all know, Spotify pulled off the illusion. Between Daniel's too-good-to-be-true demo and the straightforward ad-supported business plan he pitched, the Swedish record labels decided that they had nothing to lose, and they signed the first deals with Spotify. After two years in development, Spotify launched in Sweden. And it was an instant success. A huge percentage of Swedes were using it within just a few months, because it was easier, faster, and overall a much better product than the alternative, piracy. So how do you steal from a pirate? Lesson number one, convenience trumps everything. This is one of the most foundational principles of product strategy. And we'll talk more about this in coming episodes. Lesson number two, don't be afraid to break the rules. Sometimes to be able to improve on the status quo, you have to go full stack. Lesson number three, great ambition is what attracts great talent. This is why companies always need to keep moving the goalposts. And our last lesson, lesson number four, all truly great products have to pull off some sort of magic trick. 
In the next episode, you'll hear the story of Spotify's first mobile application and our attempt to actually convince people to pay for music again. Ask the average uh, kid on a college campus who's carrying around, you know, half a terabyte of stuff uh, that, he, that he's probably, would you pay, you know, 10 bucks a month for it for music? The answer would be no. Spotify, a product story, is produced by Monk Studios for Spotify. We're edited by Francis Harlow and mixed by Joachim Löfgen, Victor Bergdahl and Andrea Fantusi. Our theme music was composed by Andrea Fantusi. Veronica Hart is our in-house Spotify correspondent. Special thanks to Donnie Johansson, Henrik Ek and Mikael Törnvall. I'm Gustav Söderström. Thanks for listening. And here's one last piece of advice from a master programmer. Every time you waste a bite, God kills a kitten.